What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, folks? Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Diana Ballou, Senior Vice President of Digital Experience Products at Acquia. Born and raised on a farm in the rustic heartland of Iowa, Deanna's professional journey started at a couple brief tech jobs before she joined Wyden, a digital asset management vendor. Wyden offered Deanna an arena where she could carve her own trajectory, a journey she felt was like six different careers, each opening up unique challenges. She started as a front-end developer, playing a key role in steering Wyden towards becoming a full-fledged software product organization, and her continuous evolution through product management and leading software engineering and UX teams culminated in her appointment to Chief Innovation Officer in 2020. A year later, Wyden was acquired by Acquia, a digital experience platform, for Enterprise that was founded by the creator of the open source Drupal project, a popular CMS. Today, Diana serves as SVP of product at Acquia, focused on their digital experience products, overseeing both UX and CX teams. Diana, thanks so much for your time today. Excited to chat. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk about the humans behind MarTech. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely uh, been a little passion project for for us on the show. I feel like a lot of talk is about the Martech and and not enough about the humans. And everyone wants to spend more dollars in that eleven thousand Martech landscape tool that that it is now, and and not enough humans to to support all of that. And yeah, maybe we can start with like the the career journey a little bit. I I found it fascinating that you know most people in tech these days jump from one gig to the other, and <laughs> No exception myself, uh, having spent like a little over a year at, at some of my last gigs. Uh, but you've been at Acquia and Whiten for nearly 20 years, uh, if you include that acquisition there, pretty much your entire career. Uh, what has kept you at Whiten all these years, especially after that big acquisition? Yeah, I think the, the key thing for me over my course of my career has been the growth opportunity and the ability to change and adapt and to not get stagnant. And that's what I found at Widen. I mean, I found that um, since the moment I joined and I was looking really for like a Goldilocks of a company. So I had been at a few other organizations, large ones like John Deere and EDS and small ones that were like 20 people. And I needed something where it was big enough that I could learn from, but yet small enough for make, to make an impact. So when I joined Widen, I mean, this is 2004. It's a pre-press company. We did print. <laughs> you know, this is before smartphones. This is, you know, before we had social media. It's before the cloud and the big, what is the cloud? Before MarTech, it was even a thing. And so there was a lot of transformation going on there within this organization. And so I was able to start when we had just a team of six seven people on our software team and really helped transform this pre-press company that was established in 1948 into a software company, into a MarTech company that's delivering SaaS solution and really jump into all of the trends of the marketing technology. And it's just been, I mean, you're part of the MarTech world. It's been a fascinating journey to see the, the innovation of marketing technology but then over the past decade, really my focus has been on the, the people, focusing on the design side that I've been growing and the product management side of how are people using marketing technology? How are our behaviors actually intersecting 
with the rapid pace of that technology growth? And then what can we do as software vendors to help people do their jobs every day? And so that's really been the, the passion that I've had over the last few years. Very cool. Excited to to dive into some of that before before we dive into um, like what Accio does and 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 the different products there. Like I, I mentioned a couple acronyms uh, during your your brief intro. Marketers are are definitely familiar with a, a ton of these acronyms, right? Like CMS and CDP and MAP are a bit more common in, in Martech, uh, at least for me. But I know from looking at your site, there's uh, DXP offerings and also DAM or, or DAM. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Can you break down those new terms for the audience? Maybe uh, maybe they heard about it, but like, what is DAM? What is DXP? Yeah, it's definitely an alphabet soup when it comes <laughs> to Martech. We love our acronyms. Um, yeah, so digital asset management, DAM. We love to say DAM all the time. We're the best DAM around. Um, we can go with puns on that as long <laughs> as you would like us to go on that. Um, and then the DXP is the digital experience platform. And really, if you just think about what is a digital experience, we're all interacting with these right now. Now it's about the data and the content at the core, and then how organizations are bringing that together to deliver an experience to the users, to their customers. So digital asset management is really allowing organizations to create and manage, distribute thousands and millions of digital assets that they have for their brands or the product lines, for nonprofits, for higher ed, for financial services, for hospitality, everywhere that there's a digital file. Um, that is where marketing organizations need to organize them and repurpose them and to continue to make sure that they're on brand for brand management. And then with that bigger picture now with DXP, that digital experience platform, it's really figuring out how to bring all of your data and content together to deliver that experience. So you get a content management system like Drupal or WordPress or all of the content that goes in there and you bring together your images and then you bring together your data to personalize that and to drive your customer um, demand and your customer journeys in that way. So figuring out how to leverage machine learning on top of everything else to scale your digital experiences across many different touch points from web to kiosk to, to anything that you can think of these days and whatever the next thing that might come along as we talk about VR and, and AR and metaverses and, and things like that. Very cool. So DXP more of kind of like a a high level term that might actually include a bunch of other acronyms under it, right? Like we've been really deep on the podcast recently, uh, this like topic that's really popular in the data world uh, that's coming over a little bit in MarTech is like packaged versus composable CDP. And the term, the debate kind of applies also to like all of MarTech. And I feel like, you know, some enterprise have this bundled solution that has a bunch of different composable point solutions under uh, that kind of like bundle and I like I know looking at the site like Acquia is a DXP and includes a long list of platforms that are bundled together that kind of includes like you said a content management system which is Drupal the hosting platform managed Drupal which is Acquia Cloud a customer data platform on top of that as well a marketing automation platform uh, kind of uh, called Campaign Studio right and on top mm -hmm. of that you've got Dam uh, after the the acquisition with Widen so with with like every everything and all the moving pieces and, and all the different like value propositions of these point solutions for marketers or um, I don't know exactly if, if marketers are the ICP or it's like also like the IT team, the data team mm -hmm. or whatever. But I'd love to get your thoughts on the popular packaged versus composable CDP debate and maybe even take that up a step higher and get your thoughts on 
package versus uh, bundled MarTech platforms versus the composable MarTech and like individual point solutions. Yeah. So this answer probably is not going to surprise you, but from my point of view, it really depends on your internal teams, whether or not you get a prepackaged or you get a composable solution. How much are your internal teams willing to change to fit the, the pre-bundled solution and to change your processes to get those up and running? Because in a lot of times, they're going to have faster time to value. We have everything ready to go for you. If you use everything from Aquia, right, that stuff is going to work together and we're going to be able to get it up and running um, for you and to really start delivering different digital experiences based on your goals. However, we know people, people um, have a hard time changing. Processes are hard. So in larger enterprises, having composable um, offerings like we have where you can have different point, you know, point solutions, you can bring them into your own tech stack. You can then make different modules and service buys and attach that to it. That is also very attractive so that you can make the solutions meet your processes and your needs to deliver and craft your experiences. One of the key things with digital experience platform with the DXP that I've been finding fascinating since I've joined Aquia is that intersection between IT and marketing. There's always been this tension. Marketers want to go fast and they're early adopters of technology and IT has their processes and their checkboxes and they need to make sure that everything works in production and it's going to scale and it's going to be stable. And so where we get to come into play with composability is how can we give the freedom to marketers to experiment and to move fast while still working with those IT teams on the systems that need to be stable and they need to make sure are core to their business so that we can actually compose the different MarTech on top of those core pieces so marketers can move agile and fast and IT can stay stable and scale and mitigate risks. Very cool. Like I think that most people are, or at least a lot of people fall on either end of the debate. Like no, we believe that like a an all in one like platform is the way to go, and and then like I think like most of the term comes from the reverse ETL platforms that are trying to like unbundle themselves as a unique offering from the bigger CDP picture. But you guys have a different stance. Like you're not either one or the other. Like if if it's a startup or a bigger company that's looking for a fresh start, like the CMO comes in and they're just like all of this is shit, like we're, we're starting over, <laughs> then you can like buy it as, as one big bundles bundled solution, but you're not closing the door on people that are just like looking for a new CMS or looking for a new dam um, and, and integrating that with their existing tech stack. Do I have that right? Yeah, most definitely. We play well with all of the other technology. I mean, and to the point that we'll actually support you to integrate into that technology, because at the end of the day, in order for you to be satisfied with our offerings and our services for it to work for you. So if we end up, you know, bundling everything and you get all of these solutions, but you don't make use of 80% of it, that's not effective, right? That's not going to go well for the next CMO that comes in the door. We need to make sure that this being utilized. And so we want to work with you and support you along that growth path. So if you want to start with a point solution, we'll help you grow into the others, or we'll make sure that the point solution gets heavily adopted alongside everything else that you have. 
Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah, it's it's exciting, like all the different, like I said, the value propositions from all the different point solutions that live under that DXP product. And uh, I'm sure like as the SVP of product, you've gotten your fair share of debates over like who is the ICP for like the CDP product? Are we talking to the IT manager? Are we talking to the marketer? What role are they playing in that that B2B buying decision? But I I wanted to like, I'm super curious about like, how Acquia as a company and yourself, like as the SVP of product, like looking ahead at all of these like MarTech trends, like we we joke that like the only constant in MarTech is like constantly changing stuff. We had Scott Brinker on the podcast recently and like he just released his new landscape of like 11,000 MarTech tools. The space is changing all the time. And, and I'm curious, like how does Acquia prepare for evaluating potential emerging MarTech trends? Um, like we've seen generative AI, we talked about composability. There's like this idea of warehouse native martech that we've dived into uh into like your existing product suite it's not as simple as just like adding one new product it's like we've got a whole slew of products that we need to like make sure this kind of fits into what we're currently offering right now so can you share some of your strategic considerations or how you keep tabs on the martech landscape of doom like we like to call it Yeah, the land, the landscape of doom, and I will say, like, we were part of the the initial Scott Brinker Martech landscape. I think that was back in 2011. I think it was like 111 <laughs> vendors, and Wyden was on there. So I am very well versed in the explosion of vendors and opportunities that are out there. But I guess when I see it as, um, you know, from my perspective, I also see it as a Martech um, landscape of opportunity and competition because of all of the the players that are on the market and what we're innovating with, it means that nobody can rest on their laurels, right? We all have Mm -hmm. to stay on our game. We all have to keep innovating. I mean, if any of the incumbent players, you know, Wyden, myself, or Acquia, if we decide to to pause, we're going to get left behind because we have all of these emerging plays, which means that we're always delivering the next things for our customers and for our users and doing what they need us to do. So I feel like there's kind of this tug and pull, like, yes, it's completely overwhelming in some cases, but it's also kept the market extremely competitive for everybody to continue to keep, you know, putting their best foot forward. Very cool. So, you know, as far as, as far as like, is this really a doom or is this really (laughs) now an opportunity for customers to ensure that um, they're getting the best value? I think that's, that's an interesting piece there. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as, you know, some of the trends that we're talking about, I'm really curious about um, composability. This is something that as I came into DXP, I started hearing the word composability, composability. And it's like coming from the software world, you know, my background in computer science, like this is just modular. Like it's just modularity <laughs> and Drupal open CMS, you know, open source CMS founded in 2002 was built in a modular structure. Like it's founded on composability. There's 50,000 different modules that you can put into place that the community has contributed to. So this idea of rebranding modular to composability, like that's been around for a long time. And it's just really now understanding like how can you really be agile with that? How can you build um, your own DXP with all of the different possibilities that are out there? So. I think that's one of them, but really to stay on top of all of these trends, I was talking to our customers and listening and hearing what their pain points are, not necessarily listening to like, here's what I want to do with generative AI, or here's what I want to do with warehouse native Martech. Like everybody might have an idea, but more about what's not working for them. Mm -hmm. What is the pain point that they have where they're going to change their behavior enough 
to adopt something new. So generative AI is extremely interesting because AI has been hot in MarTech for a decade, you know, 12 years, whatever. We have computer vision, we have ML, and it's taken a really long time for that adoption curve to happen. And then generative AI comes online with ChatGPT. And now it's like this boom in the culture. I mean, I think there was a Google trend chart that I saw from one of the presentation where Taylor Swift and ChatGPT are in the same trend line in the culture. <laughs> and that's just causing this transformational shift now of it being accessible. So people are now talking about it and their behaviors are changing. And we see everybody now being able to, to think about what can I do with that? You see Google and Microsoft um, and all of these other players now incorporating it and bringing it into the mainstream, which is really changing you know, that, that curve of the adoption. So it's gonna be curious to see how users' behaviors change um, with generative AI. And on our side, it's just really experimenting. Right. So whenever we see some of these large things, how can we experiment to learn about them? So, for example, with generative AI, um, we had one of our business units that did a 48 create hackathon, 48 hours to do whatever you want with generative AI. And we gave them the tools and, you know, some of the research and learnings and customer problems for them to think about. And then they experimented with it. And then we take those experiments and now we go out to our users and we ask them, what do they think was desirable? Then we get those things under our product roadmap and, and really figuring out what things we can, we can learn from those experiments. So that's, you know, really keeping our ear to the ground on some of those things. Very cool. I like the process of starting with the customer and, and listening to the customer pain points and, and the biggest pain points and less about like the terms and like the 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 features that like we like to debate about uh, in, in like a value proposition standpoint. But yeah, like especially when you're dealing with enterprise customers, uh, what is like high enough on their list of pain points that they're willing to invest or like throw out a legacy solution to to try something out? It's funny. I, I chat with a lot of of, uh, like I would not not a lot. I chatted with a couple of Martech founders that um, are are like kind of like two coins, uh, two sides of the coin. So like some of the founders are just like Gen AI came out and like we needed to add it to our product like yesterday. Like we needed to have a copy assistant on there. Like all of our competitors have a copy assistant. Like we we need to have something in there. And it was just like product team, like pause the roadmap, like jump in and like build something with generative AI. Maybe there isn't like a ton of, of research and it's just like, let's just get something out the door. Um, I'm sure you've seen a lot of those, like you log into the the products that you're used to using. And it's just like, here's our new AI feature. Like instead of writing from scratch, like let our AI like kickstart that for you. But the other side of the coin are founders that are a lot more skeptical about like the pace of things right now. And they're just like, I'm going to keep working on building out my product and listening to customers and the core use cases and pain points. And I'm going to let this like AI wave kind of just go crazy because if I invest too much in adding generative AI stuff built on top of like GPT-4 right now on my product, what's going to happen when like GPT-5 comes out or GPT-6 or GPT-N and it's like all the work I'm doing to build on that is just going to be replaced by something better or so there's like two sides of that right now but I'm curious like the the experimentations that you guys ran with uh like the the hackathon on, on generative AI like was there was there a lot of like solutions or, or ideas that came about it that you were just like we need to do this like yesterday or were some of them just kind of like, ah, oh, let's see how the, the, the kind of like a uh, generative AI landscape plays out a little bit. Yeah. I think there's two pieces of that. I, 
the, you know, especially with generative AI, it's so accessible. So this idea of you're going to invest a lot in it and then only for it to change, well, one, it's going to change no matter what. It's just the right. pace of technology. So like you have to decide what is your risk tolerance. But two, with the accessibility of um, all of the vendors doing something with generative AI, I mean, we have, um, you know, you have Facebook coming out with the Llama 2 model, you have AWS Bedrock, you have OpenAI, you have Jasper, you have, like, you have all of these models to, to try to leverage and use. So it's not on you as um, a MarTech vendor necessarily to build that. It's now how might you leverage that in order to solve real problems. And so I think that's the key for us in this experimentation is how might we leverage it to solve real problems? And the question is, is if we put it in our products and we start getting adoption of it, is it actually solving problems for us? Mm -hmm. So I, it's the amount of investment to the amount of problem that we're gonna solve. And you never really know until you get it in the hands of your users, mm -hmm. what they think of it. So that's the piece of it that um, we're really curious to start learning from is, how do our actual users start leveraging it and what do they do with it now that it's there and it's in there? So that's, you know, kind of a, a piece of the puzzle of, of the experimentation. So if you never experiment, then you're never going to learn firsthand and then you don't know what the next thing is. So you do have an option. You can sit back and read about it or you can get your hands dirty and start learning along the way. Yeah. And I think you guys are being at least thoughtful about the experimentation that you're, you're going about. Like I love the idea of, like starting with a pain point, like we don't just want to add a copy assistant to some of our products if we're not actually solving a, a problem here. Like if most of our users are using Jasper or something else or GPT right now to like come up with a first draft, like we don't need to add a first draft copy assistant tool in our CMS or like in, in one of our other products. And I feel like a lot of companies didn't take that thoughtful approach and, and just like jump the gun, like Grammarly, you open Grammarly today and it's like, there, there's an AI tool that can help you get started with, with your first draft. And like Notion has the same thing and WordPress is the same thing. And it's just like, I, I don't need those tools to create a first draft for me, especially when they're built on top of GPT-4. I'm, re I'm already using ChatGPT if I'm going that route. But yeah, we talked about WordPress and, and Drupal a little bit here. I, I've definitely been in this kind of like open source world of of martech a little bit for my career drupal was actually actually the the second cms that i jumped in after like a first quick stint in, in wordpress and then i spent a little over a year at automatic working on wordpress.com and supporting the the open source dot uh, org site as well um i'm curious to to chat about that a little bit because it is like a unique lens on this like eleven thousand martech landscape here like separating out the closed cloud-based solutions versus the open source MarTech tools. Um, could you discuss maybe like a specific instance where you think Acquia's open uh, digital experience platform framework provided a competitive advantage in a MarTech context? Um, and, and like maybe like how did this differentiate your offerings from uh, the closed source competitors? Yeah, I mean, the fact that we're founded on Drupal open source is a differentiator for us every single day, mm -hmm. because we are giving our, our customers who and developers the opportunity to customize it and to make it whatever they want. So they're not locked into anything specific within the CMS. They can add to it, they can fork it and make it their own, they can contribute back to the community, and they can innovate in so many different ways. Not only do they do it, our partners are doing it as well. So instead of thinking about like, I need to you know, I need to with a uh, another vendor, like we need to get it on a roadmap and then there's a time delay with open source and Drupal, 
you can do it on your own terms, right? You can go out there and actually modify that. And the pace of innovation is also outstanding when we get into open source. So, you know, just talking about ChatGPT, I mean, there is modules already in Drupal available for people to use, committed to contributed by the community in Q1 of this year, right? So there are ways to do this in Drupal to, to generate your content right away and to summarize your text and, and to get you started because that pace of innovation happens immediately because of all of the, the 10,000 community members. So that differentiator in itself is key. The other piece of the open DXP that we have is just ensuring that we integrate with all of the, the popular vendors that our customers have. So making sure that we're open and supporting that. So yeah, we support integrations between our, our DAM and other CMSs. We support integrations between our CDP and other marketing automation tools. We are doing that because our customers need that to be successful. And we don't want to lock them into saying you only can have products for Aquia. So that, that openness allows us really that, again, to work with our customers to solve their problems and gain that adoption so that we can continue to grow with them rather it being something that they're kind of forced into. Very cool. Yeah, it's a it's an exciting like different way of thinking about like running a company that's closed and you have like a a finite number of developers that can build out the product for you. You guys have that, but you also have this community of people that are building on top of Drupal and have been for most of their career and are super passionate about it. Like maybe they're sponsored, but like for a lot of them, it's it's volunteer stuff and like maybe they're freelancers and, and consultants. So like they, they have a vested interest in doing that, but it is like powerful uh, competitive advantage to be able to, to move fast. I think that that's, it's really cool in Q1 to be able to have some of those modules with uh, with ChatGPT. It is it is moving so fast, and uh, like I know, like it, it's so hard to get in a podcast these days without talking about ChatGPT and, and AI, and not just like podcasts, it's like a, the company meetings <laughs> and like company all hands, right? Um, like one thing that we've been pretty deep on on the show is this idea that uh, like a lot of folks are either really excited about stuff or, you know, especially early stage marketers are a little bit scared and skeptical about like how fast, um, AI could potentially change or replace marketing jobs in a way that doesn't equip them when they're hitting the market in the next like year or two. Uh, it seems to be one of the first questions that many marketers are, are thinking about. And I'm curious, like what your take is on um, what do you think are the challenges that AI has to replace everything a marketer does today from your experience researching um, the MarTech space and learning about like the UX side of how marketers are interacting with those products? Yeah, I think the challenge, will AI replace marketers? The answer to that is yes, for what we do today. And I think that's interesting because marketing in the 90s is different than the marketing in the early 2000s, which is different now. So marketers' jobs have always been evolving. So is it actually going to replace them or is it going to allow them to transform and change? And that's the thing that I think is most interesting to think about is how are we going to adapt? What are marketers going to need to do to create content to feed the AI agents, to, to really think about um, and, and increase their AI literacy, to think about the models that are underlying um, some, of, some of the AI that is now powering pieces of this. Because in order to really get the adoption of AI to be um, replacing marketers, we need trusted data. We need 
AI that can be trusted. We don't have that, especially not with chat GPT mm. four, right? <laughs> that model, like it's not yet trusted because the data itself is so vast and it's coming from all of these places. So somewhere along the line, we're going to have to really increase our AI literacy and start putting together proprietary models that somebody is curating that data, that someone is deciding that goes into these models that then is um, builds everything else that they're going to do off that. So I really, you know, think that yes, the role of a marketer is going to change, but it also is going to free them. It's going to free them from the mundane tasks that they're doing right now. It's going to, you know, allow them to maybe answer questions better with data, use chat UX interfaces to just say like, tell me what's the next best customer segment to go after. And the data is going to show you, they don't need to go and try to curate that from a BI analyst to then look at the data themselves. They now have these interfaces where they can just ask it prompts and questions and continue to, to curate that to hopefully get the answers they need if that data is trusted. And that's going to be the learning curve here, or really mm -hmm. that curve is at what point will that, will the data be trusted enough to be able to um, replace the human actors that need to go in between right now to double check and approve what marketers do today? Yeah, that's a great point. The The whole like data literacy side of AI makes the whole debate really interesting when it comes to trust. Um, like we talked a lot about composability with Scott, like he's especially excited about this idea of instead of just relying on pre-built models that, you know, are, are filled with biases, how can you compose this uh, like AI stack with sitting on top of your data warehouse or ingesting data from your customers and, and using uh, different tools like Google Docs that your company is using and being able to ask it questions like uh, some of the examples that you just gave. But yeah, today, like this this topic of chat GPT bias is is really interesting. And I think like one of the ways to combat that, like you said, is, is data literacy and understanding um, how the biases in, in these like training data sets like ChatGPT affect its output. And I'm curious, like what your take is there? Like what, what implications might that have on marketing campaigns for marketers that maybe haven't really taken the time to invest in like, what are the biases that are coming out of these uh, current models that are trained, like you said, on such massive uh, scales of data just curious what your thoughts are there yeah so I, I think as we think about generative ai it's it's another tool for marketers it's it's a tool that they can leverage right now and they have to understand how that tool works in order to really leverage it so getting ai literacy um, and understanding the basics of biases and realizing that all AI has biases because they're trained on data that's been curated, um, that has our, you know, has been collected by something or someone, and that data has, you know, biases that are just built into it because we as humans have biases. So if marketers can understand that, then when they're getting back information, they need to look at it with that eye. They need to understand and then interpret it in that way. Just like if you're going to use an agency to do some of your content writing and your campaign writing, you're going to give it a proofread. You're going to make sure that it lines up. You're not going to just get it right out the door. And you need to have that careful eye. So um, really, I think at this point with where um, a lot of the generative AI is, it is a tool for marketers to leverage, but there's still a marketer in between actually then deploying that campaign. They are accountable for that. And so if they choose to take something straight from generative AI and put it in the market and then it's actually false or it actually does damage to their brand, that's still a choice that a human is making that they're making. So I, you know, I guess I encourage all marketers to start getting AI literate and to understand it so that they know how to best use that tool. Similar to, you know, 
know, content marketing or marketing automation, when all of those trends happened, marketers got into that and really learned what it was about. AI is the same way. It's not just an engineering term for, for computer science and data engineers to learn. It is about marketers learning it as well. Yeah. Easier said than done with all the stuff that marketers have uh, on their plate already, but it's, it's super important as like these models continuously change and there's like even more thought to privacy, right? Like when we talk about composability and we're like feeding confidential or like private data to chat GPT, we need to understand like where that goes and how it's training the model right now. Um, but I'm curious on the topic of privacy, like with, with like the regulations becoming more and more strict, how is Acquia ensuring compliance without this idea of like compromising the capabilities of MarTech offering? I know that like this gets even more complicated when you jump into AI and you're using third-party models, but especially in terms of personalization and customer experience, I know that's, that's the space that the DXP kind of product lives in. But yeah, curious what your your take is on on this idea of like compromising the capability of the, the, the MarTech stack that you have based on privacy regulations. Yeah, I think data privacy and marketing and that intersection is another area of um, innovation and rapid mm -hmm. growth. And like once we were able to get our hands as marketers on all of this data, and nobody knew we were doing it. We did all of these things. And now people are aware of it. And it's yeah. like, oh, wait, yeah. what are you doing with my data? <laughs> and as a consumer, that's a good thing, right? I don't yeah. want yeah. data being used and leveraged in every which way. And so when we think about privacy at Aquia, as we and as we talk with our customers, it's really about being responsible and only collecting the data that we need. We don't need to be data hoarders and then providing transparency on the data that we're collecting. So those two things, if you can make sure that you're only collecting the data that you need and you tell people what you're doing with that data, you can still do what you need to deliver value through, through a DXP, through your marketing technologies. So we're really focused on helping our customers find new ways to capture zero party data and first party mm -hmm. data. So how can you get you know, potential buyers and customers and users to give you data, to come into loyalty programs, to come into communities, or how can you capture first party data with their permission? Now, once you have that, it's actually better than all of the other anonymous data that we were capturing before, because now you can do more with that through all of the different um, tools we have with CDP and personalization and really uh, craft an experience that's meaningful to that person instead of spamming everybody with everything. So if you think about privacy along the lines of being responsible and being transparent with what you're collecting, then you can still be able to deliver the experiences that you want. And then some, you might have to be more innovative and more creative, but that's a good thing. Yeah, definitely a good thing for consumers. Just makes things a, a bit trickier for, for marketers, especially the ones that are relying on third-party data enrichment, especially like trying to be transparent about like the enrichment that you're using on, on third-party stuff. But yeah, I love your take on the zero party uh, and, and first party data, uh, like especially finding ways of, of being transparent about it and like telling users why you're collecting that data and how you're going to add value to them down the line by collecting that data. 
And I think a lot of that value is through personalization and providing content that is more valuable to this one consumer versus another consumer. And the only way to really know that is by collecting zero party data or or at least the the first party side of things. But Mm -hmm. when it comes to like seeing the results of, um, you know, let's say a customer uses the, um, the marketing automation, or I think you guys call it like a marketing channel orchestration product. Um, that's really like part of enabling this like personalized experience um, and being kind of like mindful of, of the data that you're, you're using through the CDP and pushing it through there. But like when it comes to like teaching marketers that are in the pipeline and thinking about like using uh, the product, how, how do you guys currently handle like showing the impact of a personalized campaign versus like, a non uh like a generalized campaign that's that's non-personalized today um like one topic that i i wanted to ask you about like with your experience in ux is this idea of like qualitative versus quantitative data i've gotten in a lot of heated debates with our ux team uh, my current startup about this idea of like quantitative versus qualitative like the the ux team like plays a big role in like what our product emails look like when we do onboarding emails for our customers when they sign up and for them seeing the value or like the, the the impact of those emails like it's it's all about qualitative data like before we create an email they want to do like customer interviews and show people like three different versions of an email and get the qualitative feedback on like which email they prefer and my stance is just like i i don't care about creating three versions and getting qualitative feedback give me one version and i'm going to a b test one thing in that email and i'm going to send it to the masses and i'll let a volume of quantitative data tell me what is uh the the better version of that email and we'll do incremental testing over time but yeah curious like how you've handled that like qualitative versus quantitative uh battle throughout your career yeah well, I guess I'm going to maybe ask this back to all the marketers and to you. Is a 5% open rate really good? Is a 2% click-through really what you're desiring? But these are some of the standards that I hear my marketing team like, oh my goodness, we hit 5%. That's the standard. And that is exactly what we need to get better at. And so when you ask, like, how do we help our customers understand the value of personalized campaigns? It's by changing those metrics. It's by measuring what matters and your return on advertisements. And what does that look like? How high can you increase that? Can you get a 700% increase on your open rate, which is possible when you're starting with 5%. So like <laughs> looking at those measures to do that. And when you think about how to do that, Yes, you could just blast out um, campaigns and look at the, the quantitative metrics. But I also will say that, especially with um, working in design for so long with our UX team, it's about both quant and qual. And I will say that working um, with the design team, they are very focused on qualitative, but I um, also oversee our, our data enablement team. And so I have those two teams working really closely to that, together. And I be- truly believe it's about both. It's about quantitative and qualitative. So quantitative will tell you some information, but qualitative will get you the empathy and really the feelings of what it is. So if you could think about like, how could I go out and get quantitative data from 100 different users from a survey or through, you know, click test or A-B test or things like that. But then if you marry that up with, let's say, a qualitative interview, maybe you do five win-loss interviews or you do five jobs to be done interviews, which are my favorite because you get all this behind the scenes of what people actually feel and think um, or prototype tests. So if you just get someone's perception of an email and what they say, 
those words that they say are so powerful. It actually helps you think completely different than what you would have otherwise. Whereas the quantitative, if you just do that, it's kind of like incremental improvements. It's like, oh, what if I change this subject line? Will I get more open rates or will I not? Whereas when you mix the two, you're like, oh, they felt this when they saw that. So I'm going to do this over here. So I would encourage everybody to not think of one or the other, but think about how you can bring them together to then come up with new creative ways to solve that problem. Because it, it, they both tell a story and the full picture really comes together with both of them. Yeah, very cool take. I like the the approach there and, and trying to marry them. Like the thing that's always held me back a little bit, I think like part of it is just the background and always trying to have statistical significance when you do one of those tests. And that's like the first thing that jumps out to me when we do like focus groups or just like a, like a handful of survey responses is like, we have, we're nowhere near like a confidence uh, area where like this going to be representative of like our, our sample size of like all of our customers. So even though like we could get anecdotal like opinions about like how our email looks and getting a bit more empathetic about like the opinions that, that these like uh, target customers shared at the end of the day, like if I send an email out to 10,000 people with picture A and picture B and picture B like gets much better click through rates, like, I don't know, like I, I trust that more than like this random person who decided to fill out a survey who tells me that they hate picture A because like yesterday they saw picture A in the wild and it like gave them a bad taste in their mouth, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I, I can understand that too. I, I think the, the piece of it is you're never going to have enough data to make your decision. So what's enough data to give you confidence, confidence mm. to go and do something and then learn from that. So like, just realize, especially in the world of marketing, like, um, in many cases, you know, we're not science scientists, we're not actually developing life saving medicine. So we don't <laughs> need maybe the statistical accuracy um, that you might see in, in that type of um, those type of roles and jobs. So I really just like, what's enough information that helps you make the next decision to then learn from? So like for that example, like if somebody told you one, I didn't choose that because I just saw that. Well, maybe you need to go look at your stock image library. Maybe you're reusing images that everybody else is. So that <laughs> might be a piece of information that you wouldn't have uncovered and doesn't necessarily matter for that individual test. Maybe not, but it might matter for everything else you do later. So I guess it really depends on um, and probably just to try it. I'm just going to encourage you and others just to try it. Go ask people. It's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but you can just come up with a protocol and you just go talk to five people about it. That's it. You don't have to make this a huge, a huge investment, but there'll be learnings along the way. I can, yeah, I can cool. guarantee that. I feel like you've you've warmed you've warmed it up a little bit for me. Like you've given me a better understanding of the the debates on yeah. on the UX side that I've had here. Like that's yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, like we it doesn't always need to be like super scientific, especially like like a good A/B test is only changing the one thing. But when you're doing qualitative like surveys or sitting down and getting interviews, like you're getting much more data, whether it's like statistically significant or not. Like it matters less. You're getting more data. Your A/B test is only really telling you like that one tiny variation that you change like is it better or not like your qualitative data 
you maybe chatted with like 15 people and they're telling you like a massive difference between A and B and they all tell you that B is better. Like it'll take you seven months to be able to come up with that same type of data. So yeah, somewhere in the middle, there's like trust and like going with your gut a little bit and not having to rely on and stats seg all the time and, and qualitative survey. But yeah, I like the the empathy framework that you, you yeah. kind of round it around there. My last point on this is for internal advocacy, if you want to get anybody internally to, to help influence them onto your decisions, share them a clip of a customer actually telling you something. Mm. It, it speaks volumes. If you can actually get the words of your users of customers supporting a decision that you want to make, that buy-in that you're going to get from your leaders is so much easier to get. Very powerful. Yeah. Uh, I definitely had those experiences, like the, the testimonials, but also just like the, the user testing, like the surveys, like within the customer base, like just using their own words. And we'll send that over to the copy team on the site and just like uh, reuse some of those words and, and improve our, our position there. But yeah, that's, that's great advice. Jen, I'm looking at time and I'm like, wow, like this uh, time <laughs> has, has flown by there. I, I want to ask you one last question. We, uh, we ask this to all of our guests on the show. Um, you're a VP, an avid reader. You're a mother of three boys. You have a lot going on. Clearly, one question we ask all of our guests is, how do you remain happy and successful in your career? How do you find balance between all the things you're working on while staying happy? Well, I'm not going to get your straight answer because you haven't gotten a straight answer in any way questions um, that you have. <laughs> but um, for me, I really, you know, this is something that I only have realized over time. But I, happiness is a choice. And so this is the choice that I make to decide, you know, am I going to be happy? Have I found the right organization in my career that provides me opportunities to be happy, but also I have to go seek them out. I can't wait for them to come to me and I have to be accountable for that. So over the course of my career, I think you mentioned six careers and I'm on my seventh with this new role at Acquia. Like I went and sought them out. I saw an opportunity and then I said, let's go do that because it was desirable to me. So, you know, for me, finding happiness is really deciding this is what I want and then go seek, seeking that out for myself. So that's a, that's a piece of happiness. Um, and then successful as well has changed over the, you know, the past two decades, um, especially if you think about successful in a career. And I, this is also a state of mind, because mm. for a while it was about, you know, what's the next title or what's the next thing? And I see a lot of, you know, people just entering the market and, and joining my team. It's always about wanting that next role and the next title. So really understanding and reflecting what does success mean to you? You know, for me, it's building teams or delivering new new products or completing my MBA or merging this organization together and keeping most of my team intact through a merge, like that's a tremendously hard thing to do, but being able to do that and really like appreciating that. And so understanding what that is. And then I would say, measure that. If you can measure that as it goes, even though it might take years for you to reach that, you're measuring it along the way and you're, you're celebrating those wins. So whether that's your team happiness scores or your SUS score and your product or your NPS score of your customers, like me measuring that can really help you be successful. Very powerful. That's the awesome advice. And then I think the last, yeah, the last thing you mentioned was balance. And yeah. that word is also, <laughs> also as a mother of three um, and an executive, you know, it's a question I get a lot. And whenever I think about balance, I think about a scorecard and it's like, how much am I working versus how much am I not working? Let's yeah. track my time. 
And so I don't necessarily focus on balance. I focus on being fulfilled and being fulfilled in my life. And this has, again, changed. It definitely has changed, you know, from my early 20s um, with no children to then in my 30s with young children to now in my 40s. Um, and they get to take care of themselves most of the time, which is amazing as long as they don't kill each other. Um, and so fulfillment looks different now. And so really being able to understand, you know, what that is, and then seeking to go do that. So, you know, getting my MBA in my late 30s, that was the right time for me, because I was in the right spot in my career. And I was the right spot in my, you know, with my personal life to go do that, and then put that into practice every day, I actually took all of my learnings that I had at that time, and came back into my organization and applied that, and then taught others and building up my team around some of those learnings. So really seeking, you know, what is going to fulfill me at this time and being, you know, taking the time to say, I'm good, I'm fulfilled at this moment. And I don't need to go seek out the other thing just yet. It's mm. going to happen, but maybe not just yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's super great advice. I feel like the the thing that comes out, the common thread in, in like the three part of your answer is just like being proactive about finding like what your definition of success is and like building a path towards that finding like proactively like how can you be happy and, and especially in your career like uh like I had a mentor who once told me and, and like I still think about this advice all the time is that like he said like no one is going to like tell you what to do in your career like you are the sole owner of your career and you don't have to just focus on job titles like you get to decide how you can be fulfilled within your company or even outside the company if it if it revolves around that so yeah love the advice i got one uh three month old at, at home and excited for uh maybe in the future like a second one where they can <laughs> entertain each other because yeah, it is a lot of work for sure <laughs> oh yes that is a journey all on its own <laughs> definitely diana thank you so much for for your time anything you want to plug the audience uh i'll uh i'll share out links to to i think a lot of folks are going to be curious to to check out like all the the offerings and in, in, in the bundled of uh the the dxp but anything you want to plug before we go uh, not anything specific other than everything Aquia. So feel free to, to check that out, especially our blog posts. Um, but my last final thought is, you know, just to always be a continuous learner and remember that everything we're doing, especially as marketers, there's a human on the other side of that and we're leaving an impact. And so every decision can leave an impact that leaves it for the better. Love it. Great, great point to talk about on the Humans of Martech podcast. Uh, appreciate your time, Deanna. Thank you so much. Thank you.